Hello, and welcome to Book Solid, New Canaan Library's podcast for adventurous readers across all genres. I'm your host, Kathleen, a collections librarian. I'm your host, James, an adult services librarian. And I'm your new host, Kat, a children's collection librarian. And we are back for season five. And for our first book for season five, we are reading Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield. And here's a little introduction for the book before we get started. When marine biologist Leah embarks on a three-week submersible expedition on behalf of the Center for Marine Inquiry, her wife Mary is left behind in their apartment waiting for her to return. Six months later, Mary is left bereft and waiting for confirmation that her wife has died, although nobody at the increasingly cryptic center has given her a straight answer about what happened. Then, miraculously, Leah is returned to her. Returned to her alive, but perhaps not altogether well. Something happened to Mary's wife when she was under the sea. Something that has changed how she acts, how her body works, and maybe even something fundamental about her. While Mary struggles to reconcile the person who has returned and the person that she loved and the relationship they had, Leah's own journey into the depths and what she discovered there is documented, while Mary attempts in the present to understand and deal with the increasingly alien changes that she is observing in Leah. As the distance between them grows and her attempts at creating some sense of normalcy fail, Mary is forced to reckon with the heartbreaking idea that she might have lost her wife beneath the waves after all. Now, as always, we will be spoiling everything about the book and discussing the ending in great detail because all three of us had various and different thoughts about the ending, which I'm excited to get to. So if you're planning on reading this book, um, definitely check it out. It's very short. It's only, I think, 230 pages in the hardback. So you could very easily read it and then come back. We will be waiting for you. All right. So why don't we just get started? What did we all think? So I'd read Julia Armfield's debut, which was a short story collection called Salt Slow. So I was so over the moon to see her coming out with this book, which looked similarly interested in bodies and femininity and um, also some horror. Um, Her short story collection features a story about a girl as she enters puberty turning into a praying mantis. So I already had a sense of what I was expecting as I went into this one, and I wasn't disappointed. I had heard of this book. It had been on my radar, but... Once it was published, it slipped off my radar like many books tend to. So when I started reading it, I was quickly reminded why I had originally wanted to read it in the first place, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was scary, it was moving, and it was mostly sad. It was mostly sad. Mostly heartbreaking. Yeah, it's a pretty sad book. Pretty tragic. uh, Very well written, and I came away from it very impressed. I definitely got interested in this book when Kat recommended it and was talking it up. And and one of my favorite things in a book, I think, is when weird kind of messed up things happen. And this has such a weird messed up premise, the idea that Mary's wife came back wrong. Uh, So I was really intrigued by that. And then I think the fact that, Kat, you had said that you spent how how long sobbing? (laughs) Oh, Oh, maybe like... Maybe five minutes actually crying, and then another five staring melancholy into the distance nice. while I made my fiancé hold me. Yes. yes, yes. So I, you know, I think that's an endorsement. I think that's something like, you know this book is going to stick with you. You know this book is going to have an effect. And I was really intrigued. So when I finally listened to it, I mean, I was first struck by just this beautiful writing. And it's so thoughtful and so deep and so interesting, but also very unnerving. And uh, yes, I think it really delivered. All right, well, I think, you know, we can start moving on to our discussion about uh, parts of the book that we thought were interesting and maybe other things that we want to mention here. I think that we have here haunted houses are our first general subject of discussion. Kat, 
you're very excited. I'm so excited. When I opened this book and read the first line, which actually, would you pass it to me? I would like to read it uh, because I could try and summarize it, but I will not get it right. The deep sea is a haunted house, a place in which things that ought not to exist move about in the darkness. When I read that for the first time, I was very immediately reminded of the opening of Shirley Jackson's, you know, masterwork, Haunting of Hill House, which opens with no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. And the further that I read of this book, the more that I was thinking about in what way is the ocean a haunted house? What way is it defined by that? And the more and more I saw, like sort of reflected in the text, this idea of like, the ocean is the space for the dead, the land is the space for the living, and the beach is a space that is liminal. It's very much mirrored in the way that it kind of feels like Leah's body is slowly falling apart as she becomes more and more connected to the sea. So that's something I've been exploring. I don't really have like a strong thesis, but something I've been really thinking about. I also don't really have a strong thesis about that, but what I do have is my notes from when I first read that opening line, which was just me saying, I love when things are haunted houses. <laughs> I love when things are haunted houses. One of the moments that really got to me when I was re-skimming the book to prepare for the episode, actually, is Miri looking at her own face in the mirror and describing seeing her expressions as like her mother has invaded her body. Her mother has died, and it's not like she... It's like her body is haunted by her mother when she looks at herself in the mirror. There's a lot of, of themes around haunting being inescapable in a way. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, I mean, haunting works on so many levels in this book. The writing is haunting. I think mm -hmm. it's something that kind of stays with you and is really beautiful in a disturbing way almost. Also, just this idea when we're talking about, I was thinking how you're talking about Leah's body and the idea that she's becoming less corporeal. And so ghosts we kind of think of as like energy or like they can pass through walls. They're just something. But this idea that She's mostly water or something. I just had this weird thought of like, are jellyfish ghosts? I love that idea. Let's follow that. They're, Let's they're, follow they're that not, down. because ghosts are real and jellyfish are. James, 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 I think you need to open your mind to the possibility of jellyfish ghosts. But but so I thought it was just so interesting the way these things that we think of as as hauntings get maybe not turned on their head with the ocean, but just the idea of like it's very unsettling and very creepy, and there are things down there that seem like they shouldn't be able to exist because of all of the pressure above them and because of the ways that they've adapted over time. And just, I think sometimes you're like, what am I looking at? Like, this would not exist on land. So I think it's really interesting to just see how, how can that play out in different ways? Like, what, what is real? There's such a sense of unreality permeating this book just the whole time. <laughs> There's also, the book discusses ghosts. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes time in... The very few pages that you know, this story actually comprises to talk about its conception of what a ghost is. The characters are talking about how ghosts are things that are left behind and they don't speak. That's a key thing that the people in the book seem to bring is that the ghosts don't speak. They're silent things. They do their own things. If a ghost speaks to you, the book says, it's not a ghost. It's something else. It's something worse. I had that exact line written down, which I love. That line is spoken by Yelka, who is um, a devout Catholic who is on board with Leo when the submarine goes down, and she is the first to hear the creature speaking from the deep ocean. She says that line while she has her whole body against the floor with her ear pressed to the escape hatch. And it is genuinely such a terrifying moment the first time you hit it. I also love it because we also learned that Leah believes she saw her father's ghost after her yes. father passed away. Um, at one point, Miri is like, when Leah's gone, she takes to haunting this forum message board, which is for people 
whose loved ones have disappeared. Um, they don't know if they're dead or alive. And one of the users, Mary's favorite user, writes, it's not grief, it's more like a haunting. And the liminal space between knowing and unknowing, between living and dead, reality and unreality is, yeah, it's constant. I think definitely, and this book just, I think, plays with that in so many ways, this idea that it's subtle and there are a lot of things only hinted at. I mean, when we talk about it being a horror novel, I absolutely think it is, but it's horror in the sense of dealing with these difficult emotions, dealing with grief. It's horror in the sense of not knowing what's happening. So I think it kind of ties in with just that you're not getting answers. And, and that's so frustrating and also so horrifying because you can substitute in your own kind of explanations and go down a rabbit hole of just endless speculation. But what you're actually getting, what you actually know to be true and can prove to be true, there's not a lot of that there. No. Mm -hmm. I think Miri says it best. She's a hypochondriac, she discusses um, throughout the book, and her way of coping with it is reminding herself that her fears aren't real. She's not suddenly dying of cancer in this exact moment. She doesn't have a lesion that's going to turn out to be a tumor, etc. And there's this moment where she has this realization that, like, in this situation where her wife is falling to pieces in front of her and she will never get the wife she loved back ever again, the horror is endless. And facing it requires her to take all of her normal coping strategies and toss them out the window. It says, no, this is real and you have to look at it. And that's the scariest part. This is a thing that she also, the book mentions, she, she thinks about beforehand. She's realized this before, when, before Leah had went under the sea and gone on in that expedition. They were watching TV and then Miri is thinking along these lines sort of and comes to the realization that Leah is going to die. Yeah. And Leah responds incredulously like, babe, you, do you just realize that people die? And then Miri says, no, I just, you. Like, I remember, I realized that you're going to die and she has to think about it then and now in the future, you know, in the present of the book, she's facing that in a way that I don't think she'd ever considered. I think that leads us really beautifully into the themes of grief and being unable to let go. Another thing that struck me when I was rereading is that, like, it seems pretty clear from basically the opening of the novel that Leah's body kind of needs to be returned to the sea. She's most comfortable when she's lying in the bath full and full of salt. Um, she's constantly having things like nosebleeds. I presumably on a reread, it made me wonder if it's because like the air is too dry. Or pressure, maybe. The pressure, maybe something along those lines. And Miri cannot let Leah go, which is very understandable when you see how loving and tender their relationship was. You can completely understand why Miri would be desperate to hold on to her. I think as as an outsider, right, to their relationship. And you even have moments where Mary is like, you know, how can I explain Leah to someone else? Because it's so personal, right, to be like, well, this is a person I love, but I can only give you little snapshots of our life together, or things I love about her. So I think one of the things is that as an outsider, you can look at this and you can just think, oh, there's something wrong with Leah. Either she's dangerous or she's not the same or something like that. Because I think there's that, that sense of dread where you don't know, could this be dangerous for Mary? Is this something where she's come back wrong, you know, in a very drastically wrong kind of way, or is it just like she needs to go back to the sea sort of way, and you're not really sure who has come back, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that's interesting is it still makes sense why Miri would cling to her, just because you see these moments of the relationship, and you're getting that glimpse into why she would be so attached and so kind of blinded to what's really happening and what she really needs to do and so resistant to take those steps until the very end. And, and even I think when you think she's going to do it, there's still that kind of like detour and kind of like she really doesn't want to. She really has to get to the point where she's finally able to let go. But 
But it's interesting, I think, to see as a reader because it would be so easy if you were there, if you're her friend, you're just like, you got it, you got to let go right now. I think that's part of the reason she doesn't tell any of her friends. I think it's because she knows if she tells any of she and Leah's mutual friends, they're going to be like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I got to say, one of the things that convinced me of their relationship was the structure of the parallel narratives, actually. Because there were times where you could tell they were very on the same page about things in the way that couples who are very close tend to be. Like... Uh, Leah has this quote from her dad that she uses a lot, which is like, at the beginning of the book, panic is a waste of air. She's like, you have to stay calm. You have to sort of underreact. As the submarine is just falling to the sea, she's able to stay very, very calm. And Mary's quite similar in that way, where they both tend to underreact to something horrible happening in front of them. Um, And that continually happens throughout the book. There's these parallel ideas coming across in both their narratives and also often them thinking about each other. Honestly, the things that convinced me they loved each other were not like big sweeping declarations they were like very small intimate moments like one of them tucking their head into the crook of the other of their wife's neck right things like that that really um made me root for them (laughs) i think i mean the thing that got me really bad was there's a part in the book where mary is recounting how leah once told her that she had a girlfriend that she took to the aquarium at one point and they made out there and Miri says, I superimpose myself on that girlfriend <laughs> in my mind all the time. And then while Leah is on her journey under, you know, on the submersible, she also says that she superimposes Miri onto her girlfriend in that same moment. Yeah. And it's just like, yes, they're on the same page in a really sweet way that convinces you of this relationship and really makes the grief into a kind of dagger that it is constantly being twisted <laughs> into you as you read. Every page. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that really got to me about the book on the reread is I was less scared about what Leah was experiencing in the submarine and more just like the casual horror of the apathy that Mary faces from all these institutions when she's trying to get help. Yes. Um, like the therapist who the center is paying for, who's like, it sounds like you're really not listening to Leah. And then Leah says something really terrifying, and you're like, oh, yeah, is that yeah. Leah? Le- yeah, they're, they're doing a Rorschach test or whatever, and she's like, what do you see? She asks Mary, what do you see when you look at this, you know, these ink blots? And Mary's like, oh, like a clown or cotton candy. And Leah looks at him and says, oh, I see an eye and 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 an eye. Okay. And the therapist is like, Mary, I think you're the problem here because you're not listening to your wife. Um, and Mary is constantly just trying to get a hold of the center who sent Leah down, her employer and her employer, um, which we can get into how we feel about them, maybe now, uh, is, yeah. let's say, apathetic at best and actively concealing information at worst. At one point, they just up and vanish and they don't pay for the therapy bills yeah. that they promised either. And you can imagine from Mary's perspective, it's like, if I can just get a hold of someone, if someone can just explain something to me. Mm-hmm. Um, which brings us back to Hill House, the, in that both books are dealing with the fact that the characters at the center of them will never understand fully, and they have to come to a place of acceptance, which is very difficult. Yes. But the center, more on the center. <laughs> yeah, the center is a, a very interesting institution in the book. It's taking on, I think, like a lot of roles in stories that are about long-term physical or mental illness it's taking the place in this book i feel like as like a government institution or like the healthcare system as something that's supposed to be supporting you in your time of greatest need and is incomprehensible impossible to get through to just not helpful when you do get through to it and just providing subpar attention to you and your needs whereas 
there's so much suffering happening in this book and you're you're just begging for someone to do something about it and nobody is reaching out to help. And also question mark, are they a cult? Hey, are they are they a cult? There's this moment where they flash back to the party and oh, Miri yeah. says that the executives are standing there with their clasped hands almost like they're watching a church service. Yeah. And Matteo, who is one of Leah's crewmates, is convinced that they are the ones who turned all the power off to the submarine on purpose to bait out a creature waiting at the bottom of the sea. The power does come back on it right does. when they are in the area where they would have needed to be to encounter this thing, possibly. I don't think Mateo was wrong. No. Yeah, I was on his side. I was like, you, you got it. <laughs> you figured it out. And also, I mean, I look at it now and I'm like, it's, it's the kind of thing where you just kind of go along with it and you're like, yeah, she's a marine biologist. She's on this expedition. It all makes sense. And then you're like, the Center for Marine Inquiry sounds fake. It just sounds like they threw together like the right words that you would need to be like, yeah, a marine biologist should go on this. And then they're just uh, the symbols, the things they're finding in the submarine, but all of the stuff with the lights and the timing for that, you're just like, oh, come on. Like this, this was orchestrated. <laughs> I feel like James said it straight on. What it, it kind of feels like they're um, a Call of Cthulhu villain. Yeah. <laughs> like you're playing the tabletop RPG with your friends and this is the big bad you're going up against. It does feel that way sometimes. Which I guess is a good transition to the kind of obsession with the unknown and the idea of maybe even a little bit of cosmic horror that's present in this book. Because it's not just the haunting of Hill House, the kind of gothic horror story. This book touches on the idea of the unknown being a all-consuming, terrifying thing. Not just the unknown as in the fear of what losing someone means to you and how you'll deal with that later on because that can be a terrifying completely unknown thing for many people but in this case it's dealing with there's a giant eyeball monster under the ocean <laughs> and it talks to you in your mind uh, and you, you know what if the eyeball is also a mouth you know, what's going on what's going on with what's that going on with that's that going eyeball? on that creature because <laughs> leah comes back and she is not the same at all she starts changing into some other thing. Growing scales. Growing scales. Her eyeball pops out. So then she also has a one-eyed monster vibe. Yes. Like, it's a lot. Yeah. Yes. She often, one of the things that, again, struck me on the reread was that she's often talking like she's having a conversation with someone we can't see. Yeah. And I was wondering, is she still talking to the creature she's down connected. there? Can she still hear them? <laughs> and then there are those bizarre moments. There's only like two in the book where she is the quote old Leah again. And she asks Miri about things she remembers. And Miri describes it as like seeing a creature emerge from the ocean and then disappear again. Almost like she's resurfacing and then being pulled back. And I got so mad at her this time, Leah, because Mateo was like, the power came back on, and Mateo was like, we need to go right now. Like, we need to go. And Leah's like, I gotta know. And in cosmic horror stories, cosmic horror basically is a genre in which protagonists have to understand that what they are encountering can often be harmful to their very being. To perceive the unknown in some cases in cosmic horror stories is to be completely taken by it and irrevocably changed almost always for the worse. So in this moment in the story when the power comes back on and Mateo says, let's go, let's go, and Leah says, no, I have to see, that is the classic turning point in any cosmic horror story where you realize that the protagonist has made a very bad choice and they're going to confront the unknowable and try and know it. And that does not come without consequences. No. Yeah, the, the cold chill when I first read it where I was like, oh, this is the choice you made. Yeah. And I guess, it, you know, it does feel inevitable in a way. I will say that 
I mean, the, the interesting thing I think about Leah is that she has such an initial fear of the sea. And the fact that then she becomes a marine biologist and then she eventually gives herself over to it. But I think it's just, it's, it's an obsession. It's something she's drawn to that it does feel, I mean, even though of course we see that she's come back wrong, so we know that something must have happened. It just does feel inevitable. I mean, I don't know that she ever could have made another choice, even though mm. her love for Mary is very strong and it is something. Getting back to Mary is important to her. It's what she's thinking about on the last page of the book as after they leave the creature and are ascending. Is she's just repeating her wife's name over and over in her mind. It's too late. It's at that too point. late. She's already made. She already made the choice. She had the opportunity. She was thinking about her throughout that journey under the under the ocean, and when she had the chance to go back, she said, "But I have to know." Yeah. And that that did it. And I I I my heart sank because I do know those stories pretty well. So I said, "Oh, Me yeah, there's too. no way." There's no way. I mean, it's it's every great tragedy, right? The best tragedies are ones where they're doomed by their own choices, and that's what made it work for me. Is like Leah could have made a different choice, and she didn't, and that's what made the tragedy so delicious. Because then you read it again, and you're like, "What if she says, let's go?" Yeah. She does not. She does not say, "Let's go, reader." No. She says, "Let's stay and talk to this thing." Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> So that brings us to the ending. I think we wanted to talk about that in a little more concrete detail. Yes. So the ending is, of course, it has gone to be too much for Mary. She has come to realize that whatever is left of her wife or whatever this thing is that has returned to her cannot survive it, on land. Now, at this point, Leah cannot speak. She barely has a remainder of a face. She's becoming like silvery and translucent. She can't survive outside of water anymore. So with some help, they take her to the ocean and let her roll off into the tide, I think is the description. Yeah. But James, you had some very specific, interesting thoughts. Yeah. So the parts of the novel which are covering Leah's journey in the submersible are in the text explained away as being part of a journal that Yelka's sister gave to Mary when they eventually met. But sometimes in the book, you will go from a chapter where Leah is experiencing things in the submarine to a chapter where Miri is dealing with things in the current day, and Leah will reference something that happened in the previous chapter. And so I started thinking, well, are Leah's thoughts stuck in a kind of loop, or is she kind of remembering these things while she is on the surface? Which makes the ending really upsetting in my conception of it, because the last thoughts that Leah is having is of coming up from the bottom of the ocean and thinking of her wife. But while that's happening, <laughs> her wife is putting her back in the ocean. I I was very upset. Um, yeah. Not sure how not sure how everyone else at the table had took that. I I don't know. I like it. I didn't when I reread. I should have read with that in mind because we had talked about it before. I saw more of the authorial hand in that as mm -hmm. like as a way of sort of bringing the parallels very clearly to the forefront and again sort of emphasizing how it's on the same page they are. Maybe even like. At this point, Leah is going over the, in her mind over and over again the events of the book. I guess I'm curious about those two moments where Leah comes back to herself and is like, remember when we used to get takeout? Mm -hmm. I'm curious if there's any parallel in her similar chapter because it felt like it came out of nowhere. But if she's remembering anything tangential to that, I would be pretty, con I'd be pretty, I'd be pretty convinced. I'd have to reread it again. <laughs> you, no need. No need. Um, unless you want to make yourself sad again. No, I'm good. Um, that is when Leah says the saddest line in the book, which is, I don't feel very well. And you realize it's her talking. And you're like, oh, no. You can actually feel the suffering your body's been going through right oh. now. Because in the past, like from the beginning of the book, she's been like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to go away. It's going to go away. Yeah. See, my theory was that the creature didn't do this to 
Leah, the center did. Oh. Because she seemed so sane at the end of the book when you see her on the last page where they're ascending and she's thinking of her wife and she's ready to see her again. Um, and then at the moment that Miri picks her up from the quarantine, she's already off. She's already off mm. from the beginning. That was my theory, was that the center was responsible. This is typically how I read cosmic horror stories, though, which is that the horror is uh, us. The horror is institutions. Mm. I think that's fair. I mean, I don't know if it really is as meaningful as I'm imbuing it with, but she says something like it's a weird time of day when they call her. Yeah. Which I thought was an odd thing to note. And it does kind of feel like whatever's happening when Leah's recovered, they've waited. Like they're feeling things out or they're doing things. There's something deliberate happening behind the scenes. And Miri is kind of sensing it, but doesn't know any more than that. And so we as readers don't really know any more than that. But I do think that that's a good point to make that we really don't know when something happened. I mean, you know, giving your name to a sea monster isn't great. Not ideal. No. But that's true that there's also that unaccounted time that would not be in the journal or anything. So it's kind of the most mysterious missing time. And I think it may be, maybe this is part of the reason Armfield didn't include any family relatives of Mateo. We don't know what happened to Mateo. Yes. And I think if we did, a lot more would become clear, whereas the book is very much asking us to grapple with the ambiguity of grief and of illness and tragedy. Yeah. The eye and the sea remains a great unknown and the center remains a great unknown. And the one thing that we do know is that Leah's gone. Yes. At least in my interpretation. Yeah. Not James. <laughs> I, think, I think she's gone. I think she's, she's gone. She's a jellyfish now. She's, you know. She, you know, I, I was rereading, like, what creature is she becoming? And I feel like it is a deep, deep, deep sea creature because yep. they are translucent. Yep. Um, and the pressure thing makes sense to me too. Yeah. And, and one thing that I didn't notice on the audiobook as much as when I was looking at the book is that the sections are actually divided into depths of the ocean, which is really interesting and horrifying because I mean, it's, it's really getting down there. And the weird thing is, I guess it's not really clear how deep they go. And is that an accurate representation in the book of how deep they are? Or is that just a representation of, you know, metaphorically? how deep they are. But I thought it was really interesting to think about that because, yeah, the deeper you go, like, the weirder the animals are, but there's still something. There's still things living. And that's what actually ends up scaring Leah is that they don't see anything alive. Yes. She says it's almost like they've fallen into a part of the ocean that's older, that's beyond time, another liminal <laughs> space, right, where they, they're like, we should have seen a creature down here by now. Yes. We should have seen any sign of life. It's as if they're in space instead of in the ocean. <gasps> in a different way. Cosmic. Cosmic, yeah. Another one of the things we actually haven't had a chance to touch on yet, but really liked is this beyond the forum for uh, real people who have lost real loved ones who vanished and they don't know if they're dead or alive. Miri also discovers a very interesting forum that was a really interesting part of the book to read about. Yeah, she finds a community of people who gather together online and make up stories about their husbands who have gone into space and either disappeared or are on a journey or have come back wrong, and they are just weaving these elaborate mythologies for themselves, and then jumping down each other's throats when they perceive that another story doesn't have enough thought in it. And Miri seems to be fascinated at first, before she eventually loses patience with it and just kind of puts them all on blast. I mean, for Miri, it's like, why would you want to pretend something this horrible has happened to you? The implication when I read it was that it was mostly straight women role-playing about their made-up space husbands. Yeah. That was the implication I read into it. 
Um, and Miri as well, like being queer, probably also sees this and is like, how interesting, almost like a scientist. And then, you know, as someone who has lost someone in that way, becomes furious. But it was genuinely one of the funniest moments of the book, which was nice because the rest of the book is not particularly funny, no. I would say. Right. No. Yeah. It's very funny. It's very pointed. And like, it's like, you know, when something happens in media and then people are like, I immediately wanted to just look this up. Even though I knew it was in the book, I wanted to find this. And I was just like, I want to find this forum online. I'm so fascinated by the concept of it. It's incredible. And it had me paranoid for a while though, that I was starting to think, is Leah there at all? People aren't coming into their home. As you said, she's distancing herself from her friends. I started to think, I don't even know if Leah's here or what she's seeing. And I think that probably plays into the haunting as well, that it's very unclear what Mary's mind is supplying and what is actually in front of her. I think it's up until we meet Yelka's sister and then there's a moment of like deep breath for the reader because we're like, oh, okay, we have some sort of grounding to reality now. Someone else has seen what's happening yeah. to some extent. Yeah. Thank you for appeasing me and reading this one for our first pick for the season. Uh, <laughs> I hope it didn't make you too sad. Thankfully, I don't think... Well, we do have some depressing books coming up, but so it's not on the same that. level. Oh, we've got some depressing ones. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think this is a great way to kick off in October. It's haunting and terrifying, but also very, very, very sad. Very, very, very sad. Just so. what you want for Halloween, I'm sure. <laughs> Sit in the dark and consider. So I have got a quote from the book here. This is from about the middle portion of the book, and I love this part because it foreshadows the ending pretty well. It is from Miri's perspective. I have always thought that the edge of the water is somehow particularly cold, a strange almost place that seems perceptibly to dip in temperature, the chilly liminality of water and earth. Standing at the place where one fades into the other, I have always been sure that I feel it, sudden confusion, the air drawing taut between one stage and another. Looking out across the water and feeling my feet connected to something more solid than plunging uncertainty beyond, I have always felt weighted, literal, a tangible creature connected to the earth. Yeah. If you keep that in mind when you read the ending of the book, there's some direct... Referencing. Direct referencing. Mm -hmm. Very powerful. If you want more like this... <laughs> I do. I loved this. Well, Tell we, me, James. We've got, we've got some suggestions for you. Uh, the first one I am going to recommend is... Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. It is a book about a group of scientists who go on an expedition to a mysterious place called Area X, in which previous expeditions have been sent but have not returned. And let's just say that things in Area X are not quite right. There are some strange things happening with biology. There are some interesting things happening with fungus and mind control and well you really do just kind of have to read this book to start getting into what is happening with these people and understanding exactly what the characters are going through talk about a book that delights in ambiguity that is definitely one i love annihilation i'm also going to recommend a newer novel that's called the forest brims over it's by maru ayase translated by hayden trowell from the japanese it is the perfect opposite to pair with Our Wives Under the Sea. It features a renowned novelist who has been using the women in his life to supplement material for his books, including his most famous novel, where he describes in detail his wife and how she had sex with him in the novel. And she has enough at the opening of the book. She swallows some seeds 
and begins to turn quite rapidly into a forest. The book is satirical. It is a book where instead of in this one, where you're rooting for Leah and Mary to have a happy ending, in When the Forest Burns Over, you are rooting for the forest to devour the husband. You're like waiting for it. It's really unique, a very unique voice, and it constantly surprised me with the choices that it made. I'm also going to recommend kind of an older backlog title, and that is a literary novel called The Seas by Samantha Hunt. This was out of print for a long time and was um, re-released by Tin House. It is a strange book. I read it years and years ago. It is about a young woman in a relationship with a man 30 years older than her, very toxic relationship, who is convinced that she's actually a mermaid. A lot of unreality happening. You're not sure how much you can believe anything the narrator tells you. She is a profoundly... Um, unhinged person in ways that are harrowing to read. Definitely worth looking up some content warnings for that one. But what I remember most about it was how vivid the writing was. Um, At the very end of the first chapter, she describes the police coming to surround her vehicle like the ocean rising up all around her. Yeah. Nice. Well, I think that's about it for this episode of Book Solid, except Kathleen, what are we going to be reading next? All right, so we actually have our Lit Lunch coming up in November, on Thursday, November 9th at Country Club of New Canaan. So in honor of that, we are going to be reading the book that is the centerpiece of Lit Lunch, Horse by Geraldine Brooks. It's about a discarded painting in a junk pile, a skeleton in an attic, and the greatest racehorse in American history. From these strands, a Pulitzer Prize winner braids a sweeping story of spirit, obsession, and injustice across American history. Very different from what we just read, which is kind of refreshing and fun. Absolutely. This one is a book, I believe, that takes place across three different timelines, but they all intersect with each other. You've got something that's going on in Kentucky in 1850, in New York City in 1954, and then finally in Washington, D.C. in 2019. So very excited to get a chance to read this. As a children's librarian, I'm more familiar with books about horses aimed at young readers, so I am very curious to read one for adults. All right. Well, thank you for listening and for joining us for our fifth season. We'll see you in November. Bye. Bye.